good day grade 12s of 2018. June examination is over. It might still be holiday. You're already preparing for what is to come next term. Or it might be term three, your last official term in high school. The final examination is around the corner. You just wrote September examinations. That paper one, bowl you. That paper two, give you the most headaches. Were both papers quite fair and easy? You will be uh, the judge of that. The teachers can merely stand in class and do their best to prepare you, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to go home and hit those books. That being said, there are still six chapters left. This is the most content that has to be covered in a term, and it is also the shortest term. So you can imagine the type of pressure that your teachers will be under. I will be dedicating my time to exam prep. I will not even be teaching this content in my class. It will be on podcast version and you the learner can listen to it anytime that you want to. So we will merely be focusing on getting exam ready. That being said, I just said that I will not be teaching the content. What is the first chapter we'll be looking at this term? The first chapter will be economic growth and economic development. It is not a a chapter with graphs. There's no understand work, pure study work. Now, that might be your forte. You might hate paper two, the graphs for the market structures and the graphs for the market failures. So this might be your food. Or you could be a learner that is more visual and experiences and enjoys content that they have to understand. What will you have to master in this chapter? You'll have to know the difference between economic growth and economic development. We'll be looking at the demand side approach of developing and growing the economy. We'll be looking at the supply side approach of developing and growing the economy. And I'll repeat that in a couple of times. You should get used to the the main feature of the topic. If you can remember while you're studying this chapter and continue to remind yourself that this chapter is about economic growth and economic development, it makes the content so much easier. Very, very important to note that the the first couple of uh, topics that I mentioned, subtopics, if you will, in this chapter is economic growth and development. You have to know the definitions and then you have to be familiar with the demand side approach and the supply side approach. If you are listening to this podcast and you go, hmm, that sounds interesting. I wonder what that is. That is a very sad moment in your life. I would like you to press pause on this podcast, look in the mirror and reflect, reflect on what what you were just thinking. Okay, I'll wait for you. Okay, welcome back. Okay. The demand side approach and the supply side approach is merely your monetary and fiscal policy and your supply side policies. They have been covered in depth in term one. In your second chapter, the business cycle chapter, that was the main theme of the chapter. We looked at smoothing out booms and troughs, remember? In times of high inflation, we would implement uh, monetary policies to try and bring inflation down. And in times of uh, low inflation, we would, or the government would attempt to stimulate demand for goods and services while by implementing monetary and fiscal policies. Does this ring a bell? We also discuss in detail the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, and that was illustrated by a Phillips curve. So that is your demand-side approach. That is your demand-side policies. It's monetary policy and fiscal policy. 
under monetary policy, you'll have your monetary policy instruments. And under fiscal policy, you'll have your instruments. We'll look at that in more depth during the chapter. And then you have your supply-side approach. Supply-side approach is one of the most poorly studied uh, topics in the Great 12 syllabus. Supply-side approach is all aimed at how to, how to promote the supply of goods and services, how to enable the producers to produce more goods and services. And then the chapter ends off by evaluating some of the policies that the African government has implemented over the years. And then there we'll look at topics like RDP, Reconstruction and Development, GEAR, the Growth Employment and Redistribution Program, the National Skills Development Strategy, ASGISA, the Accelerated and Shared Growth Initiative for South Africa, JIPSA, the Joint Initiative on Priority Skills, the EPWP, the Expanded Public Works Program. The NGP, the New Growth Path. The National Development Plan, the NDP. The Small Business Development Promotion Program and Black Economic Empowerment Programs. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I, mean not, I don't mean to laugh. But just listening to those topics, it can be quite daunting. It can be very daunting. And I'll be very honest with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an accusation here. And I'm going to tell you that most teachers do not actually know what those policies entail completely. And then before the teachers uh, start getting in their cars and coming to my school and giving me a piece of their mind, I'm going to sit in, I'm going to admit that maybe I also don't even know what those policies entail. Merely for the fact that those are massive, broad policies. Each one of those policies probably has a manual and... Uh, protocols of its own so to be a master of every one of those policies will be quite difficult and if you are I'll be very impressed with you and please give me a give me a shout out uh, drop me an email at harryandc10 at gmail.com or follow me on twitter at uh, at uh, think tank h-e-r and get in touch with me so I can get you on the podcast so you can come and explain those policies in detail what do you need to know about those policies for your grade 12 examination let's get through those topics let's see what your textbook has to say on those on those uh, different policies that government uses for growth and development and then let's also consider what your exam guidelines say how in depth how prepared should be on those topics because yes they study quite difficult but your first order of business is to at least know those different policies just know them. You must know RDP, GEAR, NSDS, ASGISA, GIPSA, the EPWP, NGP, NDP. And you should know what those policies stand for. As a starting off point, I would say that is non-negotiable. And then the chapter ends with the North and South Divide. We'll be looking at the more developed northern side of the economy. That's mostly your European countries and your, and your uh, Australia, New Zealand. And then you got your South Divide, that is predominantly your underdeveloped countries or your developing countries, and that's mostly your poorer Asian countries and Africa as a whole. And we'll be comparing those two. We're looking at factors like per capita income, life expectancy, and education. So there's a breakdown of what you can expect in your first chapter in term three. Let's get busy. So what is the difference between economic growth and economic development? 
Economic growth is aimed at the increase in the production capacity of a country. That basically means, that basically means an increase in a country's GDP. So if your if the country that you are residing in can produce more goods from one year to the next, and that's mostly referred to your GDPP, GDPE, and GDPI figures, your gross national income, your gross national expenditure, and your gross domestic product, your total production within the borders of a country. If those figures increase from one year to the next, that is regarded as economic growth. And for South Africa, economic growth is very, very important because it has been stated that for a country to successfully alleviate poverty, you need at least 6% economic growth. So that is a problem for South Africa as we've been, been hovering around the 1% economic growth for the last two, three years. So that's economic growth. Economic development is an increase in a country's real gross domestic product per capita. Okay, when you talk per capita, you must be you must know that we're not actually talking about about money per se. We're actually referring to people's standard of living. Okay, it, this process concentrates on people on people's standard of living, their self-respect, and freedom of choice. Okay, economic growth, the increase in the production capacity of a country, should lead to economic development, the development of the people in the country. It should lead to them being economic free, being uh, able to participate economically in the economy, they should have high standards of living, and they should have freedom of choice. Okay, So you can already see the problem there in a country that is so unequal like South Africa. We've got a big problem with economic growth and economic development. So let's, let's just summarize there. Economic growth, the increase in the product, the plus, sorry, I'm not even going to stop that. You must know that this is a natural podcast. I can make mistakes. Economic growth is the increase in a country's uh, production capacity from one year to the next and economic development is an increase in the per capita income and that refers to people's standard of living, uh, freedom of choice, uh, self-respect and you can also link it to people's education and healthcare. How do we develop and grow the economy? Now, the, the, two, the two main policies that we use is demand-side policies and supply-side policies. The grade 12s struggle to link demand-side policies to the main instruments, which is fiscal policy and monetary policy. All the grade 12s know what is fiscal and monetary policy, but they struggle to link it and remember that it is the demand-side approach. So monetary and fiscal policy can be used to stimulate the economy. So in order for you to understand how they use these instruments to stimulate the economy, you have to know what are the main tools that they use. Now, the monetary policy is implemented by the South African Reserve Bank, that is the Central Bank of South Africa, and they use the following instruments. They use the interest rates, that's the most popular one, open market transactions, moral suasion or persuasion, and cash, the cash reserve requirements. It's important to note that under open market transactions, there will also be two things that, that pop up there, or actually maybe three things. So let's look at those shortly in detail. Basically, what you should know here is how can a government grow the economy with a monetary policy? In order to answer that question, you have to know what is the monetary policy. You have to know that it's implemented by the Reserve Bank, and you have to know the monetary policy's main tools, which is interest rates, open market transactions, moral persuasion and cash reserve requirements. Then you have to know how each of those policies 
or tools or instruments can be used to grow the economy. Now let me give you an example. Let's, for instance, say the government wants to increase demand for goods and services. Now you learned in grade 10 that demand for goods and services are very important because when you demand products, producers have to make these products. They'll only make them if there's a demand for those products. So when, when producers make these products, they will use more inputs, meaning factors of production. And if you can remember the circular flow, they will purchase more factors of production from the factor market. One of those factors of production is labor. So if you can successfully stimulate the demand for goods and services, you create labor opportunities. Now, how can the Reserve Bank use interest rates to stimulate this demands, demand for goods and services? To answer that question, you have to know what is an interest rate. An interest rate is a payment that you make on debt. If you buy a car or a house, you will pay back that money with interest. If the Reserve Bank decides to reduce that interest rate, you will pay less on your debt. To give you an example, on my current home loan, if I pay 0.5%, if the Reserve Bank just drops the repo rate, which is the main interest rate, the Reserve Bank charges the other banks. If they drop the repo rate by 0.5%, that 0.5% almost immediately provides me with an extra 500 rand a month. That means at the end of next month when I pay my bond, I will pay 500 rand less. So that's 500 rand I'm going to go spend in the economy. I'm going to take it to spa or pick and pay and go spend that money. Pick and pay and spa will then receive more profits and revenue. They will have to purchase more stock. Look at pick and pay, any one of those products. They'll have to purchase more of those products. That means whoever makes those products will have to produce more. And then, then you will have the, the job creation opportunities. Or even pick and pay will get more busier and they themselves will have to employ more people. Can you see how you can use a monetary policy and one of the instruments is interest rates and that can be used to stimulate demand for goods and services. Hence why it is a demand side approach. Now your open market transactions, which is your second tool of monetary policy, you can restrict credit, uh, the Reserve Bank uh, sells securities. Now when you say securities, the Reserve Bank can make government bonds and treasury bills available. Okay. The government can can sell can sell a treasury bill, the Reserve Bank can sell a treasury bill to EPSA Bank. Now let me explain to you how it works. Let's say the government wants to increase demand for goods and services in the economy. They can approach EPSA, Standard Bank and F and B and they say, Listen, you will give we will give each one of you a million Rand. You know, let's even go bigger. Let's make it ten million Rand. Let's say Standard Bank, FNB and EPSA, all, they were all in possession of a treasury bill. Now, a treasury bill is merely just a document stating that the Reserve Bank owes you money. That treasury bill of 10 million rand was lying in Standard Bank's vault. That's a guarantee from the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank notes that Standard Bank is owed 10 million rand by the Reserve Bank. So the Reserve Bank will take this treasury bill, this document, but if you can call it that, and give Standard Bank 10 million rand. Now will that increase the demand for goods and services? Now Standard Bank will have 10 million rand available that they can lend out 
to the economy in the form of loans. More people will have access to loans now because Standard Bank will have more capital available to loan out to the general public. You'll have more companies have money for investments. More people will be taking out home loans and personal loans and all these things. And all those elements will lead to an increase in the consumption expenditure in the economy. And there again, you will have the increase in demand for goods and services. Now, you can have moral persuasion. The Reserve Bank just trying to convince the banks to maybe be more lenient with their credit policy and make more money available in the economy. And then the last one is the cash reserve requirement. By law, each bank should have a minimum amount of money in reserve for your demand withdrawals. Now, if you don't know what the demand withdrawal is, that's when your parents go to an ATM and they draw money. When they go to the shop and they draw money at the bank, that is a demand withdrawal because at any point they can demand some of the money that they have in their bank account. Now, a cash reserve requirement by law at the moment, it is a 2.5%. So APSA, Standard Bank and FNB have to keep 2.5% of all their liabilities to consumers, meaning all the money consumers have in the bank, they have to keep it in reserve. Now, how can, then, how can the Reserve Bank use that to stimulate demand for goods and services? Let me explain. If the Reserve Bank drops that minimum requirement, let's say from 2.5% to 2%. Now, once again, you think a 0.5% is very little. For a bank, you're probably talking millions and millions of rands. So that means that's 0.5% money that the Santa Bank does not have to keep in reserve. Yes, you see where this is going. They can make it available to the public. They can loan out that money in the form of loans to the public. And once again, they will increase the demand for goods and services. Now, when it comes to the fiscal policy, it, it's very important that we, 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 we know two things in this chapter. You have to know what was fiscal policy. In this chapter, they assume you really know what is fiscal policy, that fiscal policy is probably the easiest one. It's where the government uses taxation and government expenditure to develop and grow the economy. Now, in this chapter, which is growth and economic development, they they look more at how. How can these policies be used to develop and grow the economy? Like I just explained monetary policy. I went into each one of the instruments of monetary policy and explained how it will be used. Let me explain to you how government spending and taxation can be used to um, create economic growth and development. Progressive income tax. Yes, Africa's got a progressive income tax. The more you earn, the more you pay. And that is used to redistribute money from the rich to the poor. These taxes are used to finance social development. You have your wealth taxes. Properties, uh, properties are levied taxed according to the market values. Transfer duties are paid when your properties are bought and sold. Securities, shares and bonds are taxed when traded. Capital gains tax is paid over when you sell your property if it's not your main dwelling property. Let me just explain that. If you sell the house that you're living in, you are not ob obliged or forced to pay capital gains tax. But if you have a second or a third property and you sell those, you have to pay cap capital gains tax. These taxes are used to finance and develop expenditures which benefit the poor more often. With that tax money, you get your cash benefits. Old age pensions uh, get paid out of uh, tax money. Disability grants, child support grants, unemployment insurance, and other cash grants. These are also known as social security payments. Your benefits in kind, which everyone gets for free, there's a provision of the healthcare, interesting one, I'll come back and mention something there, healthcare, education, school meals, protection, etc. 
when user fees are charged for low income earners or they pay less or nothing limited quantities of free electricity and water are provided let, let's quickly stop there with all these benefits in kind we, we're mostly talking about if you can remember market failure we're talking about your non-excludable goods and your non-rival goods these are normally things that are uh, provided for free you can't charge people to use them but things like water and electricity richer areas would pay more for water and electricity than poorer areas but I want to come back and I just want to touch on that on, on that healthcare. Yesterday in the news, now it doesn't matter when you are watching this, uh, let me just repeat that, on the 21st of July 2018, the, the Minister of Health uh, released a statement saying that they are going to try and push through the National Health Insurance Scheme. Now, that's a very interesting one for me. I think um, I'll make a separate podcast on that because I've got a lot, lot to say about that. But you have to know what it is. Uh, it's a policy where all South Africans will have to contribute to the same healthcare plan. And I'm not 100% sure yet whether people will still be only forced to use public clinics or if they even you know, makes payment to a national healthcare plan where the government will then make payments over to private health institutions so people can use private hospitals. That remains to be seen. It's going to be a very interesting one. I, for one, feel the government is, is in, a, in a tight situation. And yes, please please note what I'm going to say next is my personal opinion. The public health care system is on the verge of collapsing. If you look at the Northwest and Limpopo, the public health care is probably non-existent at the moment. So the government is in a position where they are in desperate need of catering for these people because, let's be honest, the majority of the people in this country can't afford private health care. So government is in a tricky position where the quality of the healthcare they're providing is not enough. And then you've got these amazing facilities and amazing technology available in private healthcare facilities, but people just don't have access to that. So this is the government's way of basically getting access to that. They're telling the private healthcare facility, uh, healthcare providers, we are willing to pay. We've got a plan in place that is going to generate enough money so that the poor people can also use your facilities, but the government will definitely put money on the table. Whether that's fair or not, you know what, I'm definitely going to create a separate podcast on that, but I'm hoping when I send that podcast out, I'm definitely going to get some feedback from my fellow colleagues and students to hear their thoughts, because obviously it's just my opinion and there are more than one side to a story. Now that's all your benefits in kind. Your other redistribution methods, you got your, you have your public works program, that is where the government creates uh, part-time uh, employment and they actually sometimes also subsidize uh, companies to employ people and then people will at least be in employment for a specific period of time and when that contract or time frame comes to an end they at least will also leave with a skill then you have your land restitution and land redistribution i will most definitely also have to make a separate podcast on this and i'll actually love to get some students on this podcast you know what i'm going to reach out to other schools and to my school i'm going to sit down with some students and we're going to chat about these topics and hear what the general consensus consensus is on the floor the land and restitution is where if land was taken away from you during apartheid after apartheid um, and you can you've got a claim to that land you can prove it's your land that land will get given back to you land redistribution is where the government identifies a specific piece of land and they redistribute it to the local community. So there's no random restitution there. It's not you claiming a piece of land. It's the government handing out land. That's why they have lists of names of 
RDP beneficiaries, okay? That's basically land redistribution. Then you have your subsidies on properties. This will help people to acquire ownership of fixed residential properties. If you are earning less than three and a half thousand rand a month, you qualify for a housing subsidy. Now that for me is a strange one. Let's say you're earning 3,000 rand a month. I would love to know how much the government subsidies. Do they give you 1,000 rand? Because if you're earning 3,000 rand and the government gives you 1,000 rand, that means you're basically earning 4,000 rand a month. You are still not going to be able to purchase a property in a well-established area. Okay, I'm just gonna also going to put this out there. Yes, 1,000 rand will definitely help you pay rent, but I can't see it getting you into the, the property market. So that was your demand side approach. You have your demand side policies, which is in essence your monetary and fiscal policy. Under monetary policy, you've got your main tools. And under fiscal policy, you also have your main tools that are used to redistribute money from the rich to the poor. Now when it comes to the supply side policies, I do have a serious problem with the Mind the Gap and the Via Africa textbook where both of those resources explain very nicely what is a supply side policy and what it can do, but they don't actually explain how to implement a supply side policy. Now to explain this, let me go to the Mind the Gap and they say supply side policy is an approach that includes anything that can have influence on the aggregate supply of goods and services. Beautiful. Government intervention aims to facilitate the smooth operation of markets. How? How does the government aim to op uh, pr uh, promote the smooth operation of markets? It further goes to say that markets operate more equitably and inclusive. Okay, so markets must be more inclusive. It improves business efficiency. It must increase human resources and the cost of doing business must be lowered. Let's get one thing, one thing straight here. If you make markets more inclusive and more efficient and you improve and reduce the cost of doing business, yes, that is a, that will lead to uh, supply increasing. Okay. If you manage to increase, uh, not increase, but reduce the cost of doing business, companies will be able to produce more at, low, uh, at lower average cost, at lower production cost. So on essence, what we say, being said here on paper is beautiful. If you go to the Via Africa textbook, they say, you must control population growth. Yo, that, that's, that, that's a scary statement to make because we don't have official population control figures in this country like in maybe some Asian countries. Improve education, improve efficiency of labor, and create work ethic because workers with negative attitudes will compromise productivity. All those things are 100% correct. Those are things that supply-side policies will aim to solve. When it comes to technology, uh, you must produce a wider range of goods. You must improve the quality of the goods. You must explore products being produced. You must produce with more without increasing the number of costs of production. Listen to that last one. You must produce more without increasing the number of factors of production. That's economies of scale. As you produce more, your average cost per, per unit of output should decrease. Now, I just mentioned a whole lot of things that will be achieved with successful supply-side policies. But not one of these two textbooks actually mention the actual supply side policies. I think the best textbook to, to use this will be your enjoy economics. Now everyone that knows uh, my teaching methods will know I moved away from enjoy economics 
not because it's a bad textbook, it might just probably be the best textbook on the market, but the language it uses is just a little bit above the heads of an average 18, 17-year-old student. And then that's now from personal experience teaching the subject for 11 years. So what are the supply side policies? I don't even enjoy Africa, so I can tell you what I will do right here. I'm going to Google supply side policies and let's see what the internet throws up at us. Supply side policies are aimed at increasing aggregate supply. It would increase supply. They enhance the productive capacities of an economy and they lower the natural unemployment rate. Yes, it's also great. What are, what are the supply side policies? Once again, they say supply side policies will increase your output, it would increase productivity, and it would lower unemployment figures. That is awesome. That is definitely a, something that, that we need. But what are the policies? Okay. Lowering wages frees up a labor market. That's scary, eh? Lowering wages. We live in a country where excessively high wages are demanded for semi-skilled, unskilled labor. We can't have that. By demanding such high labors, you're keeping potential people out of the markets. Entrepreneurship, increasing the efficiency of markets. Education, they all say the same things. Well, I'll just mention education twice for that matter. I'll just mention education twice. Now you should know that we are second last in the world in math and science. If you don't improve the education results of the learners, you will never be able to improve the labor force, you will never be able to increase productivity, and you will never be able to reach full economies of scale in this economy. We need an educated workforce. There we go. I just found a uh, internet site that perfectly explains what are the supply side policies in one sentence? Uh, privatization by selling national owned government, the SOEs to private companies, you will promote uh, efficiency of the markets. We all know how inefficient our state owned enterprises are. They're all basically bankrupt and always needing bailouts from the government and that is our taxpayers money that can be used for much more beneficial projects. Deregulation, removing a lot of red tape and difficult laws and procedures, making it difficult for companies to, to do business. That is a very good uh, supply-side policy. Lowering income tax, basically company tax on companies. If companies pay less tax for government, they'll have more money available that they can invest in their production processes, increasing the supply of products. And reduced power of trade unions. Now that's basically linked to the the high demand of wages I just said in some countries trade unions are actually made illegal trade unions have got have a very important part to play where they protect the the rights of workers but like I just mentioned uh, demanding excessively high wages does hamper economic growth and development a supply side policy has not been mentioned is the most popular one that is your sub, uh, production subsidies production subsidy features in market failure chapter also features in grade 10, 10 chapter in public sector intervention. A production subsidy is given to the producer, um, subsidizing his production cost, meaning if he gets subsidy, he will have less production cost, meaning he will immediately be able to produce more products at lower prices. So this will lead to the increase in production and us the consumers will enjoy paying lower prices in the shops, a very popular 
method of government intervention. Now let's consider the evaluation of South African approaches used in South Africa relating to growth and development policies. It's important to note that the growth policies and development policies are mostly aimed at the macroeconomic objectives. Now I hope that sounds familiar because that is also a possible essay question and it will most likely, and not most likely, it will definitely feature in paper one if it is decided upon that that could be one of the essays for use of September trials or the end of the year. In term one, topic three, the public sector in the budget section, they discussed the five macroeconomic objectives, which are economic growth, full employment, price stability, exchange rate stability, and economic equity, which is your income equality. Now, it's important to note that the economic growth and development policies are directly aimed at those five macroeconomic objectives. So it's also very fitting that term one and term three form paper one's work because as you could really see we already discussed in detail again demand and supply side policies which features quite highly in term one and now we're also mentioning the five macroeconomic objectives which also feature in term one so you look at your development policies and now we have looked at the demand side policies and supply side policies and now we're going to evaluate and look at specific policies used in south africa First up, we'll be looking at RDP, the Reconstruction and Development Program. The main strategy here was to alleviate poverty and address the inequalities and shortfalls in social services by focusing on job creation, welfare, housing, transport, land reform, healthcare, education, training and water sanitation. If you look at those things, you're basically, basically looking at your, your basic human rights because you're looking at housing, transport, land reform, healthcare, education, training, and water sanitation. So what has RDP done thus far? They've attempted to meet the basic needs of the people and try to cater for their demand for goods and services. And this was uh, catered for by the social welfare that your unemployment grant, disability grant, child support grant and also by the public works program why the government attempts to create work for the unemployed. If you look further at the RDP, they have been quite successful in supplying houses even though there's still quite a big backlog. Um, I read an interesting article uh, in News24 a couple of weeks ago where there was a service delivery protest in the Western Cape and the minister there actually mentioned that people need to realize that yes there is a massive demand for housing and demand and housing is a, a basic human right but the sheer backlog and the cost involved in building houses they can only build successfully build according to the budget about 10 percent of the the demand per year that's quite scary okay because people are waiting for houses and if you can only build 10% per year what does that mean for the state of the service delivery protests which are getting which are becoming more and more violent if you look at the news and a lot more regular in any case there's something to think about there we at a point where we to the latest stats I saw we've got about 80% electricity provision in the country now 
if it's safe provisioning, um, that remains can be debated because if you look at the amount of illegal connections, does that form part of the stats government used to to identify uh, electricity supply? Because I hope not, because that is not uh, clean, safe electricity that's being supplied. It's people taking the demand to their own hands. Once again, there's two big sides here. The economist in me says that that cannot be justified because there are a big portion of the country of people are paying for their power. But then you have the majority of people that cannot pay for power and and they were promised electricity. It's enshrined in the constitution. So what must you do? Must you just wait forever in the government to provide power or will you eventually take the law into your own hand now i'm not giving the answer here i'm just saying it's also worth also worth a debate that topic so they targeted real gdp growth but that has been quite erratic since 1994 as you know for the last three four years we've been averaging about one percent economic growth per year so all of those is covered on under rdp if you look at rdp look at housing so you should ask yourself as as the housing function be successful Healthcare, big topic right there. I can chat the whole day about the state of the healthcare. Education, second last in the world in math and science. And then you have your targeting real GDP growth, which has been floating at 1% per year for the last three years. So as RDP, as a government policy regarding growth and development successful, uh, you can be the judge on that. Next up, we've got our growth, employment, and redistribution policy, which is GEAR. Now, GEAR is very closely linked to RDP. The main strategy was to strengthen economic development, redistribute income, and create socioeconomic opportunities for the poor. Thus far, we've experienced mixed outcomes. There's been greater financial discipline in the macroeconomic stability. That must just be said that there's been greater financial discipline in our banks, yes. The Reserve Bank is still an independent institution that that looks after the Treasury, looks after our finances, and the majority of the banks toe the line and are very professional and actually respected all, all around the world when it comes to their macroeconomic stability. If you look at Standard Bank, FMB and EPSA, and even Capitech. But in the news recently, you might know that the, the bank uh, v, VPS, VBS has become bankrupt. And an uh, interesting article came out in the Sunday Times recently where it was actually found that the, the main owners of that bank was actually using depositors' money and paying themselves salaries. And m- things were mentioned like, choppers and helicopters and the most expensive uh, Mercedes-Benzes and Land Rovers you can find in the market. There's been uh, accusations of friends and family having overdraft accounts that run up into the millions. The overdraft account means you can draw money out of the bank even if they don't have money in the bank. And you should realize that that's highly illegal. Banks' salaries should be paid out of the profit of the banks. Okay. By law, you are uh, by law you are required to keep a cash reserve requirement. Please see demand side policies of two and a half percent in the bank. You cannot squander depositors' money. Now, here's the, the big the big problem I have with this. Most of the depositors in this bank are municipalities in Limpopo and the Northwest. And if you've been following the news, you would know the Northwest is already in a very fragile state with the. Premier being ousted, not as much as two weeks ago when the new premier of the province 
coming in coming in now. So what about that money? Is it once again a government bailout? Must the government now give them his bail? Is that money that they had in the bank and the money was squandered in the bank? It is absolutely, absolutely shocking. So that's all linked to macroeconomic stability. Inflation rates fall under gear. And this must be said that we have been very, very successful in keeping the rates between the targets, which is between 3 and 6%. So in that, in that sense, you can't... Uh, uh, deny that gear has been successful but remember our gear is the policy but the inflation rates are kept between three and six three and six by the south african reserve bank foreign exchange reserves increased in most regards now we've had recently quite a big deficit on the current account but all in all our foreign ex exchange reserves have been quite stable but we've still failed to create sustainable job opportunities and we have failed in the distribution of wealth from the rich and the poor. So if you look at the gear policy, some success uh, with uh, mixed outcomes. Then we move on to your ASGISA, that's your Accelerated and Shared Growth Initiative for South Africa. Its objective was to coordinate government initiatives to create economic development. Its key elements are half the unemployment rate and poverty rate by 2014. You would note the, the silence after that statement. One of the key elements were to halve unemployment and poverty by 2014. It is now 2018 and unemployment is at 30% and poverty is at an all-time high. We've actually regressed on those main goals there. The accelerated economic growth to an average of 6%. I mentioned that last week you need about 6% economic growth per year to alleviate poverty and unemployment. That hasn't happened thus far. So without even going further into this, you can already see that, that the ASGISA has also not been very successful. It is noted, it must be noted by me that once a policy is, is not successful, um, I get the sense that um, the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater and then a brand new policy is drawn up and then people are very excited about the new policy and on paper all these policies look great but in essence the implementation of these policies has, has remained a problem for us during the last couple of years. Then you have your GIPSA, your expanded public works program and your new growth path and they will follow closely with RDP gear and your ASGISA. They're all aimed at economic, economic growth and development. There's a free two marks right there. If you could ask anything about Africa's growth, economic and development policies, just throw it out there that uh, the ASIGS, uh, ASGISA is a policy aimed at halving unemployment by 2014, aimed at economic growth of 6%, and it is a policy aimed at economic growth and development. And I know my grade 12 learners in, in my school, especially, they love writing that. The moment they don't an answer to a question, they say economic growth. What will this help? What will be the final outcome of this of this policy? Economic growth. Okay, so there, there's a nice uh, out there for the learners are not going to be struggling very hard, but likely you listen to this podcast, so you are preparing yourself for the examinations. So we have now mentioned GEAR, RDP, the ASGISA, GIPSA, the ex Expanded Public Works Program, the New Growth Path, which is quite new, and closely linked to that is the National Development Plan, the NDP. It sets out to expand economic opportunities through investment in infrastructure, 
and private investment and entrepreneurship. Now, that being said, that creating more infrastructure will create more jobs and it will create improved economic conditions for transport and business. So, it, in essence, it sounds very good, but once again, it says they through investment. Now, government does invest, but you need to have a stable economy for foreigners to invest in your country. Then you have your Small Business Development Promotion Program, your SBDPP. It was designed to deliver support services to small companies, infant companies, if you can call it that, who are just starting out and they want to enter the into the business world. So they target the Department of Trade Industry, the DTI, the IDC, that's your Industrial Development Corporation, and the National Small Business Act offer these services. So if you're a small business owner and you need help, um, whether it's financially or infrastructure-wise or administrative-wise, you can approach the Small Business Development Promotion Program and through one of those industries, uh, you are sure to get some help. And then the very popular ones in Africa and one that we're all aware of is your Black Economic Empowerment, your BEE, or recently revised to Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment, that's your BBBEE. Now, Black Economic Empowerment and the Employment Equity Act were designed to assist the transformation and redress of previously disadvantaged groups. Its measures are implemented to ensure redress and affirmative action in the workplace. I must just mention, from a personal point of view, after 1994, I felt there was a need for affirmative action because the majority of the labor force, if you look at your skilled and and higher skilled jobs were uh, protected for for white people. And after 1994, the economy was predominantly still controlled and owned by white people. Now, many groups will be very unhappy with what I have to say here. I do not believe the economy is still majority owned and controlled by, by white people. There is still a lot of rich people out there, ridiculously rich people, but our middle class, our black middle class has also grown substantially. It, it's massive. It's massive. And we've got very, very, very wealthy black businessmen in our country. So for me personally, if I look, if I look at the demographics of, of the learners in my class, I feel safe in saying to an extent affirmative action can be a thing of the past. Because my metrics of the last five years they represent a vast majority of the country. In my class at any given time, I've got black students, colored students, white students, white Afrikaans, and I just feel that when they leave this school at the end of matric, they will be able to compete against anyone for any job. So I feel for 2018, especially for the born freeze, that um, affirmative action and employment equity can slowly but surely make way for a more progressive type of policy where people can compete for the same jobs based on their education and skills and what they bring to the table as people and not based on their skin color. Once again, we are running through the syllabus and economics is a very broad subject where, where some opinions will come out. And like I said, in between you will hear one or two of my opinions. And if you don't agree with me, Drop me an email, send me a message, and we can chat about it. The last part of this chapter. Now, many of you might have been switching off there, because I, I'll be honest with you, I mentioned it uh, when the chapter started, that that part of the chapter, of this topic, which is 
please remember they'll always link it to economic growth and development is not very well studied by the learners but there's not that many policies there so all those policies are aimed at developing and growing the economy and we also shortly looked at its success how how successful has those policies been and when it comes to the success of the success of those policies if you know what each policy targets okay that actually leaves you open to a lot of opinion so it's actually a very nice section of work to score some some easy marks the last part of this chapter we'll be looking at the north and south divide now what is the north and south divide that is just an economic division if you can call it that between developed countries your first world countries and then your developing countries your third world countries now as the equator will divide the entire earth into 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 half then the economic equator as they call it sometimes a north and south divide the economic equator it basically splits up you will have your northern countries which is your developed countries that's mostly europe you've got new zealand america canada and australia some parts of Asia, and then you have your developing side, which is uh, your southern side, and that is the entire Africa. You have some Asian countries, India, and that's basically it, the entire Africa. Oh, sorry, and South America. That's your Argentina, Colombia, uh, Brazil, in those countries. So that's the North and South divide. So. Let's look at a, a couple of things that will categorize you either as the northern side or the southern side. When you look at standard of living, and it's very important here that you should know that when you measure standard of living, what do you measure? You look at the real GDP per capita, life expectancy, and the literacy levels. How many people in this country can read and write by the age of 24? That first one might sound a little bit confusing, real per capita GDP. It probably will pop up again in the chapter on social and economic indicators. It's about two chapters from now. But that's merely taking your GDP, the value of your GDP, and dividing it by the amount of people you have in the country. And then that is referred to as a real per capita GDP. And that's an indication of standard of living. So we'll look at that life expectancy education. In your northern side, your developed side, uh, real per capita GDP is very high. There's a high standard of living. Life expectancy is normally 75 years and higher, and education levels are very high. If you look at your southern side, your developing countries, uh, real per capita GDP is very low. St um, life expectancy at the moment is a meager 48 years old, and literacy levels are very low, as you mentioned, that we are second last in the world in math and science. If you look at inequality and we measure inequality you look at things like the poverty levels economic growth rates and the production and trade now in the northern side you will have very low poverty levels um, a country like australia for instance has got an unemployment rate of five percent yes i said it unemployment rate of five percent so africa unemployment rate of 30 percent Poverty levels in Africa is very high. Economic growth rate, obviously, in the developed side of the world, is very high. Uh, developing countries in Africa, economic growth is very low. And your production and trade. Uh, developed countries mostly focus on manufacturing goods, and they mostly focus on the tertiary sector. Any developed country is characterized by the fact that the tertiary sector is bigger than their primary sector. Developing countries 
mostly focus on agriculture. Indication, your primary sector is bigger than your tertiary sector. It's important to note, however, that South Africa's tertiary sector is bigger than its primary sector. But our primary sector is our biggest employer of low-skilled, unskilled, semi-skilled work. So it's a very important sector for us. The environment. The northern countries are mostly responsible for the damaging the ozone layer because they mass produce they mass produce if you have a country that's more dependent on your uh, agricultural sector you won't you won't pollute you won't pollute as much and the problem with that is the northern countries pollute the most but the whole world suffers as a result of global warming sustainable development this suggests the pattern of development that permits future generations to live as well as the current generations now in, in northern countries Practices used in production are more in favor of sustainable development. So let's just quickly put the brakes on there. Let's explain what they are trying to say here. They are making a divide. They're saying the economic process is taking place in the country. How sustainable is that for future generations? Meaning, will the future generations, your kids and their kids, be able to make use of the same practices or are we busy exploiting all the resources? Now they say the northern countries, they focus more on sustainable development. So meaning what they are doing now, they will be able to do it in three or four times generations. With the southern side, the developing side of the economy, the production practices do not promote sustainable development. We're focusing on agriculture, so we're exploiting the, the soil. We are extracting all our minerals, minerals that are non non-renewable like gold and platinum and and diamonds so that is a big worry for us because if you finish all those minerals and they all take part in the they all happen in the primary sector and the primary sector is one of the biggest employers in the economy what effect is that going to have uh, long term for our country we need to shift towards more sustainable practices and we also have to increase the education levels that is vital we have to boost the tertiary sector expand the tertiary sector so grade 12 that brings us to an end of the first chapter in term three yes it is a meaty one but as you could hear they all study work no understand work there and it's very important before we close with this chapter let's see what the exam guidelines has to say about this chapter because the exam guidelines will guide you in how to study for what in this chapter okay if you look at your exam guidelines, in your exam guidelines, I refer to this chapter as Topic 9, Economic Growth and Development. And if you look at your demand side and supply side approach, no surprises there. That is your possible essay questions that's indicated by the words discuss in detail. Which is a bonus here because in Term 1, Topic 2, Demand side policies and your supply side policies are also essay questions when linked to um, smoothing out of business cycles. So you can actually study at topic once and you've covered two possible essay questions for these exams. So when it comes to the demand side approach, you must know exactly what is monetary policy and what is fiscal policy and how it is used to grow and develop the economy. When you look at your supply side policies, you must know what are the supply side policies, the inefficient efficiency of markets, business efficiency, the cost of doing business, the factors of production and the cost of those factors of production. And you must know how those 
those elements can be influenced to create economic growth and development. So there's your two possible essay questions. And you'll be very happy to know that the approaches to growth and development, that's where we analyze the, the policies, RDP, GEAR, uh, NSDS, ASGISA, and GIPSA, and all those, those very interesting topics, it says they briefly evaluate the following topics. So briefly meaning you're looking at your short questions, you might also be looking at a eight more question or a 10 more question to the additional part in the essay. And in the North and South divide, you must be able to compare the countries in the North to the countries in the South. That's the end of the first chapter. Take life seriously, but don't forget to have some fun.